Hi, good evening and welcome to Radio Graffiti. Jerry Ryan here with you for the next hour. Tonight's programme, we call it The Mersey Beat. We're looking at all the music that happened back in the late 50s and early 60s in a port in England called Liverpool. It spawned the Beatles and many more besides. We'll be talking on the phone to London to the editor of a very, very famous magazine that was very much responsible for bringing to light people like the Beatles in Liverpool at the time who was called The Mersey Beat. But first of all, a little music from the Fab Four. Bill, are you there? Yes, I am, Jerry. Very welcome to the programme. And I think this is a particularly sort of poignant time that we've picked to do this particular programme with the death of John Lennon quite recently. And the reason we have you here is to fill us in on the whole sort of thing that was happening in Liverpool from where the Beatles came, because you were, as I just mentioned, editor of the Mersey Beat magazine, which was, I think, in a lot of people's eyes, responsible for highlighting the great talent in the Liverpool area. Maybe you'd like to start off at the beginning and tell us how the whole thing started. was quite unique and I discovered this in the late 50s when the skiffle boom hit the whole of the British Isles there was a tremendous surge of interest in young people uh, playing guitars and becoming interested in music the skiffle boom was quite unique and maybe many people have forgotten just how important it was what was the skiffle boom bill well the skiffle um, boom was based on um, it was a, a, a British thing uh, based on the original sort of American um, parties which the blues people had in America where they just had sort of um, uh, tea chest bases and, and, and quite uh, crude equipment to play with, a couple of guitars and things. And they sang songs based on the American blues, the American railway songs and things. And in Britain, you had things like Chas McDevitt and you had uh, Lonnie Donegan. And there was a tremendous boom that happened. And as a result of this boom, the first ever artist from Britain ever to get to number one in America was Lonnie Donegan with Rock Island Line. Now, never before in the history of music had a British artist reached number one in the American charts. Lonnie Donegan was the first. Now, this was the origin, really, of a lot of things what happened in Liverpool because Lonnie Donegan did a concert at the Pavilion Theatre in Lodge Lane, Liverpool at which uh, Paul McCartney was present and a lot of Liverpool people were at that concert and were inspired to start a whole host of skiffle groups on Merseyside ranging from the Gin Mill Skiffle Group, the Ed Trafford Skiffle Group 
which Ringo Starr was a member. This would have been from the 57 to 59 this, kind this of time. Was, this was in 1957. Yeah. Now, a lot of the bands artists at the time, the James Boys became King Size Taylor and the Dominoes, the Raving Texans became Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, because what happened, when the skiffle boom died, suddenly it was a boom, and suddenly almost overnight it was over, and all the kids throughout the British Isles who, who'd begun to play skiffle just dropped it and went back to the jobs, but in Liverpool it kept on, and Liverpool people became, started rock groups. And uh, in about 1957, rock groups were emerging all over Liverpool. At this time, what would you have been up to? I know that you went to art college at the same time that John Lennon and I think Paul McCartney went to the Liverpool Art College. Were you involved with the music scene yourself at that time? Yes, well, what had happened uh, at the thing, the art college is attached to the Liverpool Institute. In the art college itself, there was Stuart Sutcliffe, who was a member of the, the Beatles originally, and John Lennon was a schoolmate of mine at the Liverpool Art College. And um, next door, attached to the same building, was Liverpool Institute, where Paul McCartney was, and also George Harrison. And they used to rehearse, for the, uh, the Beatles used to rehearse in, in sort of the early days, when they, they formed soon after, not long after uh, John had, had had his own skiffle group, the Quarrymen, at Quarrybank High School. And uh, he had different people in his band. He, he met uh, Paul. Paul was introduced to him by Ivan Vaughan at uh, the Walton uh, Village Fate. And then um, George Harrison was in various groups. He was, he was a couple of years younger than they were, and he'd been in groups like the Rebels. And um, he had a gig at a place called the Casbah in Haymans Green in Liverpool in West Derby. Uh, run by a woman called Mona Best. And um, George's group, actually, was booked on, on, on the Casbah uh, Club, but um, the, the leader of the group uh, suddenly decided he didn't want to do the gig, so George asked his two friends, Paul and John, if they joined him, if they would join him doing this uh, residency at the club. So they agreed to join him at the club, and they began to play together, and that was the really the first time that um, uh, John, Paul and George played together and they had different drummers at the time. Of course that's and, a... And Mona Best's son was Pete Best. Ah yes, yeah. And he was at the Casbah with a group called the Blackjacks and when they got rid of the drummer and got the offer to go originally to Hamburg to a club called the Indra Club and this was the Star Club itself didn't uh, open till about two years later and they appeared at clubs like the Indra Club, the Kaiser Keller, and the Top Ten Club, well before the Star Club. So all these reports that say the Beatles started in the Star Club Hamburg and all the rest of it is, is completely wrong and erroneous. A little bit premature, really, wasn't it, saying that? It yeah. certainly was, because the, the, the Star Club didn't open until 1962 anyway. Actually, just the way you've mapped out the beginning of the Beatles there sounds very, very much like any other band that's played in a garage in any other capital or any other city in the world, really, just a couple of kids getting together, helping one another out. Oh, oh certainly, because the Beatles, in fact, were not regarded as a top Liverpool group. The best Liverpool groups, when they've seen originally started and all the fanfare that began to grow in Liverpool, uh, the top groups... Um, were, were groups like Cass and the Casanovas and Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, and the Beatles were not regard, regarded as a major group. And um, uh, one instance of this was that uh, they were only getting gigs in a little cellar club uh, called the Jacaranda, and they were getting about five, uh, five shillings each to appear. They didn't have any proper equipment, and the girlfriends had to sit on chairs holding broom handles to which the mics were attached so that they could sing because they didn't have equipment. <laughs> and since I was on the Students' Union at uh, Liverpool Art College, um, Stuart and I, who were both on the committee, um, used the Students' Union money to buy the Beatles a PA, PA equipment so that they, they could play at the Art College dancers and we allowed them to take the equipment to do other gigs because they didn't have any money to buy equipment or anything. It certainly sounds like money well spent indeed, Bill. We're, we're, we're going to take a break now for some Merseyside music and uh, we'll yeah. be back back with you in just a few moments' time. Okay. Hello, little girl. Hello, 
Maybe you'd like to fill us in now exactly on sort of what influences people were working under around that sort of 60 to 63 period in Liverpool because there was a, literally there was an explosion of bands, something like we've experienced ourselves here in Dublin over the past three years where everybody felt like jumping in and having a go. Yes, well, it, it, still, it still happened really, basically, in the late, late 50s because um, I've been working, I started Mersey Beat in 1961 but I'd actually been planning the newspaper for a whole year before then, and I'd been going around all the venues around Liverpool and, 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 and gathering facts in notebooks. I used to sit with the Beatles in, in the Jacaranda having coffee and things, and we used to meet other people like Jerry Marsden where for the railway, and he'd, he'd come in, and there were members of Cass and the Casanovas that'd come in, and they'd tell us about certain gigs, and I'd find, find out about others, and I started making lists. And I found that none of them realised how many promotions were going on in Liverpool. And they didn't realise that there were literally, and I made a list, of over 350 different bands performing uh, regularly every week in, in Liverpool in 1960. Okay. And also, over 300 different places where bands could play ranging from uh, the Merseyside Clubs Association, which was an association of social clubs which had groups on, to what they call the Jive Hives, which were all these venues, promotions of ballrooms, where they had three to four groups every single night, to gigs at uh, New Brighton um, Pier, to the Silver Blades Ice Rink, and to every kind of other uh, things, from, from parties and social events to things at synagogues, there were so many venues and there's so many outlets for groups that a lot of people didn't realise it, you see. It was a matter of somebody had knowledge of half a dozen promoters and others had knowledge of another half dozen. But I put it all together and, and I remember before I started Merseybeat, when, I, when I'd written down all this information, I thought, this is absolutely incredible. Not only did I firmly believe that nothing of its kind was happening in the British Isles, I believed that Liverpool at the time by 1959 and 1960, was a powerhouse of talent that had never seen the like uh, since New Orleans at the turn of the century. To me, it was like New Orleans because there were there were there were groups performing in the basements of houses. Rory Storm actually had gigs in in the basements of his own house, and and there were there were gigs in Shabines. And when they started the the, the um, illegal strip club in one of the Shabines in Upper Parliament Street, um, the Beatles actually backed Janice the Stripper there, you know, which is the first uh, uh, experience back in a striptease artist. Well, apart from numbers of groups, it certainly sounds like Enterprise was something that certainly wasn't lacking back in those days. I, I think, really, the Mersey Beat magazine itself was very, very important at that time too, Bill. I, I mean, for instance, the Beatles winning the poll in 1962 did actually establish them as the top Liverpool group. Maybe you'd like to give us a, a breakdown of it, how the magazine came about and sort of what you used it for or what Liverpool used it for. Yeah. Well, what happened was, um, 
what happened was that I decided I was always one for facts and getting facts uh, together. And when I'd collated all these facts, I, de start, I decided to start a, a paper devoted solely to the, to, the, to the groups. Now, they called themselves rock and roll groups at the time. Now, I came up with the idea one night when I was sitting down thinking how I'd work out this paper of covering a certain area. And I thought in terms of a policeman's beat, not the beat of music. So I thought of the name Mersey Beat to establish the area. Now, as soon as I started the paper, all the groups then started calling themselves beat groups rather than rock and roll groups. And they used, for the first time, they had uh, Mersey Beat. I got a little office in Renshaw Street, and for the first time, they had a headquarters. And all the groups could find information and know about promoters and I had all the information available for them, and uh, I, I was still at art college at the time, and I had to run down to the office every lunchtime and uh, every evening to sit there and write. And uh, my wife, uh, now who's uh, my girlfriend then, Virginia, she was the only member of the staff who paid a £5 a week to sit in the office all day. <laughs> and uh, John, Paul, George all came down to help her, and they used to answer the phones for her, type out stuff for her, John wrote all his pieces, you know, and I got this from the whole scene. Everyone who was involved in the scene in Liverpool had this terrific camaraderie, a terrific uh, empathy to each other. They were all part of a thing. They didn't uh, think in terms they'd, they'd become successful or anything else. They just loved music, and Mersey Beat suddenly was a thing for them to focus on. Well, Bill, what, what effect do you think setting up a magazine that dealt specifically with the talent that they were experiencing in their own city in Liverpool, what effect do you think that had upon all the musicians and the public? Well, it completely showed people what they didn't know before. When I put the facts down in Merseybeats about all the venues and all the groups, suddenly all the promoters began to put posters around all over the town. They began to advertise the different groups. Competition began to uh, happen. All local shops and stores began to display um, uh, photographs of the local groups, and there was a terrific feeling uh, in the whole city that we were creating something. And um, using Merseybeat as, as, as the basis, uh, everyone was able to relate uh, to Merseybeat, and I had all the groups come to me all the time. We were able to give them advice, uh, we were able to help them, and all the promoters had come along and offered their advice. And um, you know, it, it sort of became a sensational sort of thing. Personally, myself, I was going out seven nights a week to up to three to four gigs every night, you know, covering them. And, of course, it was such a, a, a lot of work because I was doing it while I was still at the art college and I had to do the layouts, uh, the editorial, uh, write most of the copy myself, even do the illustrations, uh, collect the advertisements, deliver copies myself. And, of course, this led... Uh, to the state where sometimes one period I was 20 hours full stop in the office uh, till I collapsed at one time. Well, just listening to you talking about it there, certainly, you know, I'm always finding myself getting very excited about the whole thing, even though it is such a long time ago. It sounds as if there was so much energy going about. We're going to take another piece of music, Bill, and we'll be back to you just after this, okay? Yeah.
Okay, Bill, talent hunting was something that must have obviously happened immediately as soon as these bands began to be publicised in magazines like yours. Now, I don't think people were very aware outside Liverpool, really, what was going on for quite some time. Uh, When did the talent scouts suddenly start appearing? Well, what happened was then... I had to... The issue of Merseybeat, the second issue of Merseybeat was stopped for one week because uh, we found a lot of con men were coming to Liverpool and we had Bob Wooler write a piece about how, uh, how in the case of Casey in the scene who's being conned by a con man, uh, a supposed talent scout. We had these people come up to Liverpool and try to sign up all the groups. And I tried to champion the groups. And one time we received at, at Merseybeat 58 letters addressed to every group mentioned in, in the um, paper. And I didn't open the letters, but I called all representatives of the group to the office and they opened the letters and they found it was from these talent scouts and we knew from the tone of the letters and what they intended that they were going to come the groups so we advised them it was an amateur scene you see because the average uh, price a group would get for a gig a decent group in liverpool was two pounds ten shillings it's not exactly a fortune is it really the group the groups couldn't afford vans and for instance um a lot of them used to travel to gigs on the corporation buses and I remember when um, the foremost had to travel to uh, St. Luke's Hall, Crosby, and they put their equipment on a bus, and they had to put the drums underneath the stairs, and one of the passengers fell and put his foot through the, um, through the drums, you know? Because nobody had any real money in those days, and they all sort of subsidised the, the, their work at night in the, in the, in the ballrooms and jive by daytime jobs. Well, I think something like happened, as happened with the, with the emergence of the new wave, I think a lot of people saw an awful lot of bands, didn't they, and said, well, listen, we'll give them a lot of them short-term contracts and we'll take the best that, yeah. you know, happened to make it. Was, was that actually the situation? Well, uh, when the agents and when people sniffed any sort of money, um, uh, that is when um, they tried to do nasty things to the groups because, as I said, there was a terrific feeling with everyone. Everyone used to help each other out. The groups used to help each other on gigs. If someone's equipment uh, broke or, or they had a problem, then the group would lend them theirs. Now, when the competitive thing came in with outside influences trying to um, promise them this, that, and the other, we started getting nasty things happen. For instance, a group would be booked on a hall, and suddenly uh, they turn up the hall and found that uh, another group would be on, and the promoter said, well, I've received a phone call saying you couldn't make it tonight. And rival groups had phone and cancelled gigs uh, for other groups, you know. And there was a, a certain nastiness came about. Uh, that, that was after the Beatles had recorded. Because up till the time that the Beatles really started to have big success, everyone never, all the groups never really thought they'd achieve big success. They just wanted to create their own music locally. But as soon as people thought people were going to make money, then the nastiness began. Do you yourself think that it was the Liverpool scene at that time that broke the whole monopoly that London had on the recording industry in England? Liverpool did, and what what we tried to encourage was this, and this is the reason why there was such an outcry in Liverpool when the Beatles decided to move to London. We knew, and I wrote about in editorials, the fact that London had a complete stranglehold of the entire... Uh, music scene on the mainland of the United Kingdom. Everything was done in what they call Tin Pan Alley. London had firm control. Now, when we said all these things are happening, and for the first time the A&R men and everybody else had to come up to Liverpool, we still felt that what we needed was a centre outside of London and that there should have been recording studios and, and, and offices of music publishers and all the rest outside of London, because um, once London got its hold on these people, then it kept them and it manipulated them and it didn't give full reign to their talents. And the examples of this were what actually killed the Mersey scene itself. And I know certain facts which are sort of um, led to the demise of the Mersey scene, which was deliberately killed by London who saw the power going out of its hands. For instance, one manager of half a dozen really excellent um, Liverpool groups had a London agent pay him 30,000 to to take over all his bands. 
he took over the bands and then didn't have them do anything, you know, while he got London bands to sort of come back and have the London backlash sort of thing, you know? And um, I, I, it's it's hard to really believe that somebody would do that within within oh, the business. I've got so many examples of specific things. I mean, I'll give you an example of one of the best records that came out of Liverpool initially at the time was uh, "Do You Love Me" by Fan and Flamingos. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, "Do You Love Me" was a song originally recorded by uh, um, the Contours in America, a five-man black vocal group in America. Now, Fanny's Flamingos did a beat version of this, a good uh, rock and roll version of Do You Love Me, which was completely different from that of the Contours. They came down to London to record it. Now, it was so terrific that the London people would not put it on the A side of the record. They deliberately put it on the B side. Then, suddenly, you got uh, Brian Poole and the Tremolos and Dave Clark Five uh, coming out with a single of Do You Love Me, which was a direct copy of Fanon's Flamingo's Do You Love Me. They copied Fanon's Flamingo's, not the contours, and both uh, uh, the Dave Clark Five and Brian Poole and the Tremolos had big hits with it. In fact, Brian Poole and the Tremolos got to number one, and that's what made uh, those two groups and started the big London revival. What, what, what were and they so afraid of, though? Of the original Fanon's Flamingo's version was far better and it was stuck on a B-side deliberately. What were they so afraid of, Bill? I mean, for the management side, they surely they could have just made money. They were afraid of going outside of London and they wanted to get it back within their fold. Now, in America, you have the music centres in different places. You have New York, you have the West Coast, you have Nashville, you have Detroit, uh, you know, you even have uh, in the southern states, you know, uh, Macon, Georgia, and all the rest of it. But in Britain, it is still down to London. And, and, and if you don't come to London, you've had it. Now, when the Mersey scene sort of really started to break, I had people coming from every part of the British Isles, from Manchester, Scotland, Bristol, uh, yeah. South End, everywhere, wanting to start papers like Mersey Beat. And in 1963, I knew personally of 16 magazines based specifically on Mersey Beat, um, which covered their own local scenes. It was the most imitated paper in the world at one time. That's what and they I'll... were all building up. In fact, uh, I'll give you an example of uh, in Birmingham, they started Midland Beat, and that, uh, that, that gave publicity and it helped to develop the scene for everyone from the Moody Blues to the move onwards, you know? And in Manchester, their paper helped to, uh, but actually I had a Manchester section in Merseybeat, so the Manchester people looked towards Merseybeat, and I was able in Merseybeat to build up the Manchester scene with Herman's Hermits, Freddie and the Dreamers, the Dakotas, and all the different groups there. I went to Sheffield then and saw people like Dave Berry and helped to build them up in the paper, and, and I thought that this was a good thing, to build groups all over. I had somebody from Ireland come over and, and they told me about a group, I think they were called the Connaughts, and I said, call them the Green Beats, you know? Call them the Green Beats. I had everyone come to see me all the time. And I said, do your own environment, uh, promote your own local groups, you know, and, and do your own thing. But well, London so- still got them in the end, you see. And what happened, when the Beatles went to live in London, everyone in Liverpool wrote, you know, wrote letters to Mersey Beat, and they were furious. Not a, They thought the Beatles were deserting them, not just by going to London, but, but they thought they were being upset, uh, absorbed by the London scene and had sold out, you know? Oh, well, I think that's something, actually, that we could come back to, Bill, just after we take another piece of music. It certainly yeah. sounds as if it's a good thing to have uh, all these people around England having copied your magazine. That certainly yeah. sounds like something to be proud of, really, than rather complain. Yeah. So we just take another piece of music and back in just a short while. Do you think you're very smart? But won't you tell me how to 
passing through it Suppose that you think you're very smart But won't you tell me how do you do it? How do you do what you do to me? If I only knew Then perhaps you'd fall for me like I fell for you When I do it to you Okay, we talked, Bill, before uh, the music there about you were saying how some people in Liverpool felt that they'd been somewhat deserted when the Beatles inevitably headed off to the big bright lights of London, the bigger recording contracts and the big money. Was was that actually the case, do you think? No, they went to live in, in London because of a genuine thing that that's where the work was, that was where the main television thing was, that was where the main promotion was, and they had to move. Uh, Brian Epstein made the decision to move down to London and that was a sensible, natural thing to do. But as I said, the people felt that when they left, that uh, Liverpool and the other places outside um, outside London would be left on the scrap heap again, which is exactly what happened. Why do you think that was? Why was it so important to have the Beatles remaining in Liverpool to keep the whole scene alive? Well, because the people had the theory that if... Um, the Beatles remained in Liverpool, then offices would open, there would be recording studios open, there'd be music publishers open, and there'd be another centre outside of London, and people from Scotland and, and other parts of the British Isles could, instead of having to travel the complete length of the country, could promote themselves uh, far nearer to their homes. And, of course, in Merseybeat, by that time, become one of the biggest selling papers in the in the uh, music business and I was introducing I introduced the very first gig guide of, of, of where all groups were appearing around the country I had sections on all different groups from Sheffield and all the rest of it and I was giving publicity which the main music papers weren't they just dealt with the people on their doorstep and that's all they wanted to know they wouldn't shift themselves out of London you see so nobody outside of London could really get the publicity or the promotion or anything else like that. And the people felt that. Um, London, if you look at the map of the British Isles, as you know, London is right, right at the very bottom. So people from Scotland have to travel from one end of the country right to the other. Whereas, why shouldn't it be like in America, where you have different centres? Why should there only be one centre and no other? So um, London had to get back its status quo, and it did it, and everything is now... And by 1965, it was that they controlled it again. They got it back into their grasp. Well, yeah? I, of course, I think even John Lennon's presence in New York, at the centre of the, a lot of the music activity in the States, sort of is was a continuation of the Beatles' desire to be where they thought it was most active. You've just talked about them heading off to London. I think the whole world knows the story after they got to London, really. It just was up and up and up after that. Yeah. But was it really a total sort of sliding downhill in Liverpool? Because we were left with hundreds of bands, really, oh, there, no, weren't you? and the bands were very, very good, but they didn't get the opportunity because London had to come back, you see. London wanted the power back in its hand, and they came up, obviously, with everyone from... Um, from the Rolling Stones to Georgie Fame, and they started the R&B thing. In actual fact, Georgie Fame came from uh, just outside Liverpool. But London wanted it back, and in fact, it was George Harrison who put um, uh, Dick Rowe onto the Rolling Stones because uh, the Beatles are always people who like to talk about talent, but they saw other talent. They weren't afraid of talking about it. And I was with Dick Rowe and George Harrison at the Philharmonic Hall in Liverpool uh, when we had a beat competition there. And Dick Rowe had been having a terrific amount of flack because he turned down the Beatles, you see. And everyone, he was in everyone's sort of black books at his uh, Bad company. move, all right, yeah. Rather and George bad Harrison move. said to him, I, I remember sitting with them, and Danny Wilkie and the seniors were on stage at the time, and George said to him, by the way, he said, I've seen a great group down at the Crawdaddy Club in Richmond. They're called the Rolling Stones. They're fantastic. And Dick Rowe, even though he was a judge, suddenly got up, uh, left the hall immediately, uh, got the train down to London and signed up the Rolling Stones immediately, you know? That's incredible. But with just 
you know, how many, you mentioned earlier on that we we had about three hundred bands in in playing oh, beat music in Liverpool. I, I made a list of three hundred and fifty alone, but there, there were more than that. In fact, when I went to Liverpool uh, just to spend a few days over Easter, a couple of days ago. I, I, I just saw, for curiosity, I'd find out what bands there were, and I made inquiries. And in three days, I made a list myself, a couple of years ago, of 100 different Liverpool bands, and I knew there were more. And in fact, a lot of uh, great Liverpool bands emerging now. The talent never ever, ever left Liverpool. It, it continued in Liverpool. We had a mini-boom in the sort of mid-70s, when we had all Liverpool groups like Liverpool Express, The Real Thing, Our Kid, Buster... Suddenly, all Liverpool groups started to happen, and once again, London completely jumped in and on hobnail boots with them and came out with punk. Well, going yeah. going back to that sort of early sixties period when the music industry seemed to be at one of its most exciting times, and you mentioned all those hundreds of bands, did they all just suddenly go back to working in sort of factories and everything like that and forget about the scene? Oh yes, they did. They had to, and it must have been soul destroying because. Um, I remember I tried to find out about Farron, you know, Farron's Flamingo, yes, his real yeah. name's Bill Roughly, mm-hmm. and we went because they, we had a Merseybeat revival in Liverpool in, in 1970. You know, th- this was like a big gig at one of the major halls, and we wanted to get some of the groups together, and we found Farron couldn't turn up. He was working in a, a bottle factory or something, and all, all the people had to go back to factory work or whatever, you know, because it's um, Liverpool is a place where the, the work is... Um, sort of really hard menial type of work not very um not the sort of work where, where you can find job satisfaction that is why their part-time thing has always been you always get liverpool comedians liverpool groups liverpool entertainers because they've got they've got it in them to drag themselves out of this soul-destroying type of work that 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 um they can only make a living from in Liverpool. And of course, I think that was something that was very prevalent in John Lennon. He really wanted to get away from that whole factory atmosphere, didn't he? Yeah, but, but you see, John uh, was never a working-class hero. All that fiction, he came from the uh, a, a sort of posh part of Liverpool where they had sort of bathrooms and gardens front and back and all the rest of that. John, John his tragedy was in, in the desertion of his father and the death of his mother, that's where his tragedy and where he he had his real um, soul-searching thing for a creative artist, because I believe that creative artist, there was also a story about a good painter has to live in the garret and, and learn how to start. Mm-hmm. With John Lennon, it was the personal tragedy, but uh, he didn't live in a slum. I mean, Ringo was the only one who really came from uh, one of the poor parts of Liverpool. Um, John and Paul came from the middle-class districts, which were quite nice places and quite nice avenues and things, you know? Well, t- turning from the Beatles, who were obviously in this sort of super success bracket as far as the Liverpool groups were concerned, and moving maybe to, and there is only one word to call them really, all those hundreds of failures, those bands that existed for short, very short periods of time, could you tell us anything about them, Bill, the failures? You yes, know, wh- the, the, uh, there were some brilliant failures. Because London wanted to take control, uh, Liverpool would have produced not only the Beatles, but a whole. it would have revolutionised music and even more so. One example is the Liverpool 8 District, which is Liverpool's Harlem. Yeah. Liverpool was a place where the slave trade business was done, and all the rich slave traders had these big houses in Liverpool 8. And what happened over the years, all the black population gathered there, the West Indians and the Africans and everything, and there's a black area, it's Liverpool's Harlem, Liverpool 8. Now, in Liverpool 8, they suddenly had all these fantastic black artists, the Chants, the Soul Bells, the Poppies, all kinds of different black groups. Playing what kind of music? The Beatles wanted to support and help these people, and the Beatles agreed to support the Chants on the cavern. And the chants were a black five-piece vocal outfit. Ah, And the Beatles uh, played behind them. The Beatles played as their group. Brian Epstein didn't want this. He said, you mustn't do it. And John Lennon argued. He said, we're going to do it whether you like it or not, you know? And they played and helped the chants at the cavern. And all these black groups in Liverpool, nobody wanted to know they were great. And um, 
nobody in, in Britain wanted to know because black artists, they'll accept the Tamla Motown people, but they wouldn't accept black artists from Britain, you know? And there were, there were great, um, great black artists from Britain who never had a chance. In fact, the chants themselves had to finish, and, and one member is now with the real thing, one original member. The real thing are the only sort of black artists from Liverpool who, who emerged later. They emerged in the 70s. Okay, Bill, we're going to take another piece of music and uh, another piece of music from that area that we've been talking about on tonight's Radio Graffiti, Liverpool. We'll be back to you just right after this. Right. If you ever leave me, I'll be sad and blue. Don't you ever leave me I'm so in love with you The birds in the sky would be Sad and lonely if they knew that I'd lost my one and only they'd be sad If you're back to me The leaves on the trees would be Softly sighing if they heard from the breeze that you left me crying, they'd be sad. Don't be bad to me. But I know you won't leave me, cause you told me so. And I've no intention of letting you go. Just as long as you let me know, you won't be bad to me. So the birds in the sky won't be sad and lonely Cause they know that I've got my one and only They'll be glad you're not bad to me But I know you won't leave me cause you told me so of letting you go Just as long as you let me know You won't be bad to me So the birds in the sky Won't be sad and lonely Cause they know that I've got my One and only they'll be glad You're not bad to me They'll be glad You're not bad to me Well, Bill, you mentioned earlier on there in the programme, as a matter of fact, his name has cropped up a few times, Mr Brian Epstein, yeah. who I think really symbolises to anybody who's ever been involved in the music industry the epitome of a manager and, of course, the epitome of the Liverpool manager. D did you ever have any contact with him? Did you know anything about him? Well, Brian, um, yes, what happened was this. He worked in... Uh, he was the manager of a record store in Liverpool in Whitechapel's NEMS, which was... Uh, sort of the initials of North End Music Stores, his parents' company. Mm -hmm. Now, I took the first copies of Mersey Beat into him, had a meeting with him, and he accepted 12 copies. He phoned me that afternoon and wanted more, and he was surprised he sold out. From the second issue, he was selling 144 copies, an issue, and he couldn't believe it. He called me into his office, and we had meetings two or three times a week. And uh, this was early in 1961. Uh, from June 1961, and Brian asked me if he could write a column on record reviews for Merseybeat. So in July 1961, I had uh, Brian Epstein doing uh, record columns for Merseybeat, and he was interested in the groups. He was so amazed that this was going on in his own hometown. He read the paper, and he read about the Beatles on the front cover of the issue of number two of Merseybeat, and a big story on the Beatles recording in Hamburg for Bird Comfort. Now, in his biography, he's got that this guy, Raymond Jones, came into his office about August or September of that year, and that's how he got onto the Beatles. Well, that was fiction done in his, his book, The Cellar Full of Noise, which was written by um, Derek Taylor. But, in fact, Brian knew all about the Beatles and all about the groups before then. He used to come to the office uh, and ask my advice, and he used to take me out to dinner and discuss all the things. And uh, I was the one who fixed him up to make his first visit to the cabin to see the Beatles. And, um, At which he was pretty was stunned, wasn't he? Because he was a man who people knew he had a record store, uh, 
how he managed it, they knew his family owned it, because all the managers in Liverpool there were part-time managers who didn't earn money. Billy Kramer was managed by Ted Nibbs, who was an old-age pensioner. Uh, other managers were everything from street cleaners to people who worked in, in greengrocers, you know? That was something I was just going to ask you about there. Brian Epstein, I mean, we all have these memories of Brian as being a, a sort of a pinstripe city gent, really, a very yeah. conservative man who was shocked, really, at the cavern. Yeah. Where, where, what, where are all the managers of that type, you know, men older than, much older and sort of maybe sli- a slightly different class from the groups they were managing? Managers were uh, a, a whole spectrum of people, as I mentioned, and um, Brian was the only one with money because a lot of the managers uh, didn't earn any money from it, and they, they had full-time jobs and they managed in their part-time. And when they called themselves managers, they did it for the love of it. Brian was a fe- Brian was a businessman and saw it as a business, and people laughed at Brian because he was so sartorially dressed and. And so elegant, you know, they thought, oh, this is not true. And when he came down the cabin, he started coming down to see them. He started wearing leather gear, which was not really his sort of type of gear. And people laughed at him when he came down to the cabin with leather jackets and things. They were laughing at him, you know. They thought he was trying to merge in. He was slumming or something, you know. But he was... um... But it really did take a man like him to take one of the Liverpool bands and make them a permanent fixture in the music world. Oh, certainly. I've nothing but uh, admiration for Brian and for what he did and how he came about it. And he and I used to have uh, talks and conversations and dialogue. He used to see him at least three or four times a week. And he was a man who brought something to it uh, a love. He wanted to do it, not specifically for money. He did it as a business. But he also brought to it a, a tremendous amount of flair, a tremendous amount of, of genuine love for it. He, to him, it was a creation. When he wanted to manage the Beatles and wanted to become involved in Liverpool groups, to him, it was a vocation in life because he'd had a number of failures. He'd had to go and work in Times Furnishing in Lord Street. Mm-hmm. He'd uh, been uh, kicked out of a couple of schools. He'd failed at RADA. And here was something that he believed would be his vocation in life, in which he could add something to, and he did it. And and I I love and admire Brian for what he did. He was a real genuine person, and um, he he brought tremendous flair. I'll tell you something. He said, as a manager, he said to me at Merseybeat, I've got a price of £15 for the Beatles. I've actually got a gig in which they paid £15. Now, this was unheard of at the time, because, as I said, groups were getting from £2.50 upwards for for a gig. And I mentioned it to the other managers, and everyone laughed. They said, nobody is worth, no group is worth £15, and Brian Epstein's lying, you know? They didn't believe that he'd booked the Beatles for 15 quid, and this is true. Well, he certainly went from £15, really took them, where £15 million became, I think, an yeah. insignificant figure. We're going to take our last piece of music tonight. Bill, we'll be back to you in just a few moments. OK. Last night I said these words to my girl I know you never even tried
Well, Bill, we've just come up towards the end of the programme. Uh, on Radio Graffiti tonight, we've been uh, examining the whole Merseyside sound and, uh, of course, it was prompted by the very tragic death of John Lennon. And, actually, we were just talking about another man just a few moments ago, before that piece of music, who also died tragically, really, as well. Brian, Brian Epstein, he, he died a very... He lived a short life and died a tragic sort of a death, really, didn't he, Bill? Yeah. Was, was that... uh, so, I, I remember, I was alone in the house at the time when, when the television, suddenly the news flashed with Brian Epstein's picture, and I thought, what's Brian up to again? You know, he's, he's pulled off another coup, you know? And they announced his death, and I, I sort of was by myself, and I cried. I felt such a tragic loss. And the point is, with the Beatles, are, are more than anybody else that the groups have been involved with and the people have been involved with, have brought me a lot of tragedy in, in the feeling towards the people because uh, fair Stuart Sutcliffe, who was my closest friend out of the Beatles originally, he died prematurely at the age of 21. Then Brian died, a victim of suicide. Then even the Beatles' lawyer, David Jacobs, committed mm-hmm. suicide. Then Rory Storm, a very, very close friend who originally uh, had Ringo with him in the, in the group, but was a close friend of the Beatles, he committed suicide. Then, um, then Mal Evans, who was a close friend of mine and uh, was very close to the Beatles, he was shot by, by police in America. And for, for, for such a small uh, group of people to have so many deaths from suicide and shootings is, is, is just too much, you know? Well, th- that certainly sounds like a morbid angle to the whole thing, and I'm well, sure well, that... Th- this is the truth, this is what happened. That each of their deaths sort of put me in really black depression, you know? Because they were all young. I mean, John Lennon at 40 was young. Uh, Mal Evans w- 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 was young in his early 30s. Brian was young, Rory Storm was young, Stuart was only 21, you know? Of course, the industry really has claimed an awful lot of lives, not just even those just surrounding the Beatles. But, uh, Bill, uh, we're, we're running out of time here on the programme, so we're, uh, before I say goodbye to you and thank you very much for joining us tonight, maybe you just give us some idea of what you're doing yourself at the moment and also what do you think is going to happen in the future? Have, uh, can we look forward to another era as exciting as we saw in the 60s in Liverpool? going to be pretty grim. I think, look, I'd like to start, uh, I'd like to do a, a, I'd like on the 20th anniversary of Merseybeat to do a special issue of Merseybeat um, uh, portraying all the current Liverpool groups and to do a fantastic issue on, uh, in June 1981 of all the Liverpool groups and do a special issue of Merseybeat. I'd love to do that and to give some sort of uh, help to all the groups and the aspirations and to use ideas to help people, you know. Uh, But somehow I think there's a terrific dark side coming in the music business. The 60s, everyone had great hope and aspirations for the future. The 70s, in every method, not, not only music, but throughout the whole world, the Western world, we've been depressed with the, with the 70s because there was um, uh, not only gallop inflation because of the oil thing, but there was terrorism, uh, communism in Southeast Asia. There was a whole depressing sort of thing. And the groups that emerged, the, 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 the biggest uh, artists of the 70s, really 60s people like David Bowie mm-hmm. and Rod Stewart and everybody else were, were survivors of the 60s. But the ones who came from the 70s um, who, who spit on audiences and cut themselves on stage and, 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 and advocated a policy of violence, you know. To me, it frightened me. I thought, well, is it my generation? Uh, uh, am I not in touch with the, uh, with the current scene? But I don't think it's that. There's a sort of sickness that has come into it. Myself, I prefer, and I'm involved, with groups in which I have a positive attitude. I, I, do, I do sort of... I'm, I'm, associated with people like Susie Quattro, mm-hmm. who loves rock and roll and comes out with great rock and roll records. I'm associated with Hot Chocolate, who, um, with their lyrics and the type of things they do, they're a group who, who give me intense pleasure, you know? And I'm involved with artists and groups who have a positive outlook to things and want to entertain people, who love the business and, and want people to enjoy the records and the things they do. And, and the people I'm involved with don't have a lifestyle where it's all a, a life of violence or going and getting drunk in pubs or taking drugs. In fact, none of the artists I'm involved with ever touches drugs or anything like that. It's not needed in the scene.
the Beatles there. Our thanks to Bill Harry, uh, former editor of Mersey Beat, for joining us tonight on Radio Graffiti. And also my thanks to you for staying with us for the hour. It's good night for myself, Jerry Ryan, and producer Pat Morley. Take care of yourselves and God bless. If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other documentary on one productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.